Hello everyone, I'm Simon Ford of Forge Gin. Martinis, gin and tonics, Negronis, great classic cocktails is what I'm about. But I also love to hear of great recipes from great bartenders from around the world, which is why we've partnered with Beyond the Drink for this season. Cheers. Well, you just heard from the man himself, Simon Ford, and this season of Beyond the Drink is presented by Ford's Gin. I'm Cappy, and this is a segment where some of the best bartenders in the country explain the stories and recipes behind their favorite drinks. To get the recipe from this episode, check out the episode notes in your podcast player or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Drink is a production of Beyond the Plate. All right, everyone, for this episode, we're talking with Christian Suzuki, a.k.a. Suzu. Suzu is born and raised in San Francisco. You can find him on Instagram at Suzu Vroom. That's at S-U-Z-U-V-R-O-O-M. Suzu's going to walk us through, what else, a gin cocktail. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the drink with Suzu. All right, Suzu, tell us what we're drinking today, buddy. <laughs> How's it going? So um, we are going to be making a uh, Mikoshi Negroni. Um, this is a slight take and variation on a classic Negroni. Mikoshi is a Japanese word for kind of like a portable shrine. So I'm going to give a little backstory over here real quick. I was born here in the Bay Area, but I also grew up in Tokyo as well, too. And over the last ooh, like 31 years, oh, I hate saying my age, I've gone back and forth from visiting my grandparents and my mom, my brother in Japan to even living there. Um, here and there. So when I last lived there, I was, I think I was 18 and 19 and um, got really involved with this really famous festival called the Sanja Matsuri. And this is pretty much one of the biggest traditional festivals that ha- that goes on in my neighborhood of Asakusa in Tokyo. And it's pretty much a celebration of um, the three men who created the Sensoji Temple, which is like a really iconic temple in Tokyo, um, just a few minutes away from our house. And for three days, there's a huge festival and celebration where you carry these portable shrines that are called Mikoshi. And um, you kind of just like run around the neighborhood. You start out like six o'clock in the morning, eat a bunch, drink a bunch, carry these crazy like, you know, two ton shrines and have an incredible time. And it's exhausting, but it's fun and it's celebratory. It's seriously one of the most exhilarating moments of my life. And I've been very fortunate to be able to uh, partake in this festival two times in my life. Most people aren't able to just like show up and be a part of it. You either have to be a part of the festival committee or you're in the Yakuza. It's like one of those two. There isn't really like much um, option out of that. So I've been very fortunate to be a part of that. So the Mikoshi Negroni is pretty much kind of like my imagination, what I would like to have drank during this festival um, in like the hot, you know, late spring, early summer season. So the Mikoshi Negroni is going to start off with an ounce and a half of gin. I would prefer something that's obviously juniper forward. I would not want something that's like too overpowering because I I think that this is a very kind of like delicate take on a Negroni. Um, So I really like Ford's a whole lot because it is full bodied. It's voluptuous. There's a small floor element to it as well, too, with the jasmine notes in there, too. And then that's going to be paired off with with um, a three quarters of an ounce of Mancino Sakura Vermouth. If that's not accessible, um, you can always substitute that with something like Lille Rosé or any other like really kind of full bodied, almost like juicy floral uh, Blanc or 
uh, dry vermouth. Obviously, Sakura is kind of like a iconic flower to Japanese culture. So the two kind of pair really well together, the gin and the uh, vermouth. And then just to kind of like bring it down to earth a little bit, not make it super floral like a flower bomb. There is, of course, the addition of three quarters of an ounce of Campari to um, really, you know, a little tribute to the classic Negroni. On top of that, there are two additional ingredients in there. There is an organic strawberry. We call that Ichigo in Japan. And the strawberry is kind of like one of the most celebrated fruits of Japan. Um, we kind of eat it year round, whether if it's during the winter time, where it's uh, you'll see a lot of like desserts out there that feature strawberry, whether if it's like a mochi or even like a cake or whatever. And of course, during the summertime, it's almost kind of like bringing a present to like a, a, a child or a family. Like if you go to someone's house, bringing like a basket of strawberries is kind of like a big deal. So I love strawberries and cocktails, especially when it's in reference to like my Japanese heritage. And for me, strawberry and Campari is just like an awesome combination. And just kind of like the, the wild card ingredient is one Makrut lime leaf. I love the combination of strawberry and lime leaves. I kind of use this combination of flavors in a lot of Negroni variations that I make, or even Boulevardier variations. Just that kind of zing and zest that you get from the lime leaf really cuts through the sweetness of the strawberry. It kind of sings alongside the Campari. So for me, it all just kind of makes a whole lot of sense. Though lime leaves are not traditional to Japanese culture, it does kind of like pay homage to, you know, Asian ingredients altogether. And it just sings beautifully in a, in a Negroni variation. So that is my Mikoshi Negroni. <laughs> Sounds incredible. So many questions. I, wanted, I was like closing my eyes, like listening to this. All right, take us through it. So mixing up, you know, you, we have all these ingredients. Take us through kind of the method on how this all comes together. Totally. So this is, um, you don't, I don't quite see this often in most cocktail bars or at least anymore, but I love using uh, fresh produce in stirred cocktails. I'm very lucky to be from a place like California where we have incredible produce all year round. And when I think of, when, when I, whenever I see bars that feature fresh or local produce in their cocktails, they tend to be on the more kind of like gimlet or daiquiri kind or whiskey sour style of drink. I have kind of a sensitivity to citrus. So I typically go for my more spirit forward cocktails like a Negroni or a Martini. Um, and Hatton's Old Fashioned, those are all kind of more under like the category of cocktails that I would tend to drink. But I'm also a sucker for local produce. I'm a sucker for seasonal produce. And I have always loved incorporating fresh fruits into or even vegetables or herbs or spices, whatever it is, into even stirred cocktails. So for this cocktail, I start off by muddling one organic strawberry. And I want to go organic because you know, organic typically tastes a little bit better. They're a little bit more juicier. And hopefully uh, if you're buying organic too, that means you're probably ordering or buying from someone who specializes in strawberries, or maybe it's just the season that they're, you know, really focusing on, on that. And then just one lime leaf, I tear that apart uh, and just kind of gently muddle that in there as well too. Lime leaves, you don't really have to do a whole lot to them. You can even just like throw it into the cocktail, give it a stir and let the ice and all the other ingredients kind of just naturally muddle the the leaves together and you'll still get the really incredible oils and essences from the lime leaf but then of course you add your campari your vermouth your gin give that a stir this is one of those cocktails where you are going to have lots of it's going to be a very fibrous cocktail and that's not really like what i'm looking for in a stirred drink i really want to have something that's silky and smooth and and um almost like 
I, I use the word voluptuous a whole lot in cocktails. And I think that's a word that people don't use enough, in my opinion. But I am looking for something that's like juicy and voluptuous. So I double strain that cocktail to make sure I really get all of the um, strawberry particles away. And if in case I have any lime leaves um, floating around, I'll remove that as well, too. Yeah. And then, of course, serve that on a big, nice big rock in my case i don't have any nice fancy rocks at home so i have a i have a glass that has like a piece of like fake glass ice built in and you can just keep that in the freezer and pour it into a vat and uh boom it's delicious it's gonna keep your drink nice and ice cold if i had a nice ice block then then it would gently kind of dilute my cocktail and still taste absolutely delicious and bright and something that i wish i had uh in hand during these festivals in japan <laughs> yeah yeah there you go I, I i've actually i feel like i've bought some of those like silicone ice cube molds on amazon obviously i'm not going to get like a clear beautiful ice cube like you probably use in your bar but just you know uh, something fun if, if someone's mixing up a drink at home but you mentioned you like the large cube because it like slowly dilutes the drink when would someone want to use like the large cube versus like a cup of ice you know i for me, I, I I feel like I am one of those kind of bartenders that I try to be approachable and I try to make sense of like certain things. So for me, in the most best perfect world, I would rather have everything served on a big cube, like when it comes to cocktails served on ice. And then my other option would be crushed ice. That's just me. Like if I could have all my water, all my coffee, all my, you know, any other cocktail that requires like ice that's not pebbled that's that's not large i would rather have pebbled or crushed ice personally so for me it's like one or the other so <laughs> but yeah i i i also don't think that there's a wrong answer when it comes to cocktail development cocktail consumption um if you don't have certain things then you can definitely you know um adjust your recipe or adjust your uh presentation to whatever makes you happy i think that's a huge takeaway for me, um, especially in the last year. Uh, I don't want to, you know, segue too far away from it, but I've had the the very lucky fortune of being able to teach virtual cocktail classes all throughout this entire pandemic. Um, I think I actually had my last one yesterday. I was supposed to have one today and I canceled it. But one of the things that I really, really had to um, relearn and really embrace was bringing myself back down to earth, talking in a way where every home bartender will be able to understand and, you know, really applying or I guess putting myself in their position or their shoes. Um, so using verbiage that makes complete sense to them, using tools that they have at home. So, you know, maybe I, big ice is something that's not an option and that's totally fine. It does not mean that your cocktail is going to taste better or worse. I love that, Suzu. What a great explanation and cheers to you. That's so smart, your approach there. That's, you know, making it accessible for the home cook, the home bartender, right. if you will. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> so lime leaves, you mentioned, I feel like you're in San Francisco and out on the West Coast, you guys could get like fresher produce in a local pharmacy than, you know, other parts of the country can get. Um, but <laughs> can you, like t typically speaking for someone, if they're in, you know, a lot of major cities have these, but also small towns have them. Uh, could, could you potentially find something like this in like an Asian market? Oh, totally. I mean, once, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very lucky to be here in the Bay Area where we have like, you know, different kinds of produce everywhere, left and right. I've definitely been able to find lime leaves in larger like um, 
like health centered grocery stores like Whole Foods. But, you know, if you don't have a lime leaf or you can't find a lime leaf, you can still make this excellent cocktail by maybe peeling a little bit of lime peel, like lime skin and throwing that in there. You'll still get that same sensation. A lot of a lot of the cocktails that I produce, I don't look at them as like you have to follow a particular ingredient or, you know, it has to have this, this and that, but I almost look at it as an idea of a drink. So for me, the Mikoshi Negroni is a cocktail that's a, a, a Negroni variation, but B also has some juicy succulents and something sharp in there. So maybe if strawberries are not available, I can substitute that for something else, like maybe uh, a strawberry liqueur or maybe perhaps raspberry or something. And if I don't have a lime leaf, a lime, um, a lime peel will work totally fine as well, too. So there are more concepts and ideas than the actual um, straightforward ingredients and recipes, I would say. Yeah, I love your point of view on cocktails, Suzu. Really, I, I got so excited just doing a little research on you and, and what you've come up with and what you've done before we hopped on here. I know you were, you know, you were called, uh, was it last year, 2020, one of the most imaginative bartenders, which that really shows because your stories, as you're explaining this and the story behind it, and the more I dug around looking for, you know, not looking for getting info on you, you know, your cocktails, you're, you're big on like stories behind them. And I think that's a really great thing. And it probably comes through when, when a guest drinks your cocktail, where do you, I guess with all that said, where do you, cheers to you on for all that, but um, <laughs> where you. do you, where do you draw inspiration uh, like, do you get inspired hiking, like to come up with a cocktail or, or you know, when I, you see I an ingredient say, or what is it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I've always had a pretty um, strong, like sensory memory. So like you mentioned hiking, um, very quick side story. Uh, long, long ago, I used to teach wilderness survival uh, off the on Catalina Island, so off the coast of LA. And the island, you know, it's, it's about like a 45 minute boat ride away from from San Pedro. Some of the things that I remember the most about the island are like the smells, the aromatics. So you get lots of fennel, which fennel is not at all native to that island. Um, it was brought by, you know, birds or whatever. I actually have no idea where, how fennel got there. But like, you know, fennel is like the one thing that I always remember. And then on top of that, there's like eucalyptus. And on top of that, you've got you know, the smell of sea seawater. So like things like that, like definitely I, you know, it, it might not on paper sound like it'll all come together, but they made sense to me because I was living and breathing all those aromatics. So I, I kind of apply that mentality to a, a lot of like the stories of my life. So I'm, I'm also very lucky to have a lot of kind of like stories and life experience when it comes to like the restaurant and bar industry. I grew up within this industry. I don't want to get super, super deep into it, but pretty much my grandparents started a restaurant and bar business out in Japan and Tokyo back in the 40s, immediately after the war had ended. So their success from that first restaurant went on to opening up a total of five restaurants, a cocktail bar, and a ranch that sourced all of their own proteins and produce for their businesses. So restaurants have been in my DNA, in my blood. I grew up into them. So whenever I think of like my childhood memories of like being in Japan, I think of like the smell of, you know, cooked mushrooms, maybe some secondhand smoke and maybe like garlic that came from the restaurant across the street or something in this like, you know, urban atmosphere of Tokyo. So 
I, I'm always drawing inspiration from the things that I remember or the smells or flavors that I affiliate with a certain memory. That's so cool. And you've worked in quite a few bars. Many bartenders have because sometimes you guys are working at one, two, three bars all at the same time. <laughs> Very guilty of that. <laughs> so, do you remember like the first drink you created that made it on a menu? I do, actually. I was first hired at the uh, 15 Romolo in San Francisco. This is kind of... Well, I mean, technically, I worked at a nightclub in Tokyo for like a month, but I don't want to I don't like talking about that. But um, I worked at 15 Romolo and um, I started off as a cocktail server. I was 21. I didn't know anything about spirits or cocktails. I think I remember my then boss asking me during the interview, like, you know, what is your knowledge in cocktails and spirits? And I said, I just take shots of whatever's in front of me. So <laughs> that was like how much I knew about anything in the cocktail and spirits world. But one of his goals was really to try to make his cocktail servers to be better bartenders than half the bartenders in San Francisco. So we got trained really, really intensely on the knowledge of, you know, spirits, classic cocktails, the approach of modern cocktails, the approach of combining flavors together. So I think for me, um, my first cocktail that I put on the menu over there was it was like a mezcal lavender chartreuse situation. I don't quite remember everything that was in there, but I remember it, that one was inspired by a painting of Frida Kahlo that I saw. So I don't remember the whole circumstance of like where I was or what I was smelling or whatever. But that was yeah, that was my first cocktail I put on there, the Frida Kahlo. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Is that what you called it? I did. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. It's just a joy to talk to. So I want to switch gears. A big part of this podcast, as we were talking a little bit before, is how our guests give back to their community. And I think a lot of people know chefs and restaurateurs give back, whether it's donating a dinner to their restaurant or donating 500 portions of something to an event or being part of an actual, you know, nonprofit organization. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the people making their cocktail at a restaurant also give back in a huge way and support causes, whether it's through their voice, through their time, through their wallet. I know you have this pop-up going on right now, and I saw one of the biggest pledges for it is to uplift, support, cross-promote, and collaborate with other communities and hospitality workers who identify as POC, LGBTQ plus of all genders, immigration statuses and physical and developmental working conditions through events and fundraisers. Yes. So I want to, I would, I would love to, it's a mouthful, but it's an incredible. Thank you. I'd love to give you a moment to shed some light on whether it's a specific organization or causes that you want to shine a light on or raise awareness for. Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I'm going to, I sorry, I talk a whole lot, so I apologize for that. But the first thing is, yes, I just launched a pop-up series um, called Kagano Pop-Up. I mentioned earlier that a part of my grandparents kind of like little mini restaurant bar empire that they operated. One of them was called Kagano Bar, which was a, a bar that my grandmother owned um, back in the 50s and 60s. Of all the, 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 their, their businesses, this was the least successful one. If anything, the most controversial one at that time. My grandmother got a lot of backlash for being a woman, owning a bar, being in a bar, because at that time you didn't see a whole lot of women in bars in Japan. So she had always kind of like told me um, about some of the struggles that she had experienced within 
her local community based off of just her gender. My mother, when she immigrated here to the U.S., she got a lot of backlash for being an immigrant, opening up a restaurant in America, as that was, I guess, a threat to the, you know, citizens who have an American dream. But my mom also had an American dream, too. So that was always kind of like something that my mom had to remind me as well, too. And for myself, I've always had not I don't want to say a struggle, but my road to where I am today has been a lot more longer with a lot more obstacles because of who I am being biracial, being a part of the LGBTQ plus community. So all in all, I've always wanted to just be able to help and uplift other people who might not have it as easy as this, this and that person. So my Kigano pop-up is really about creating cocktails, showcasing cocktails that are my cocktails, really based off of my sensory memories, based off of my experiences in my life. Um, And also a huge ode to my grandmother, to my mother, to my heritage and to like pretty much just everything about everything about me. But alongside with having that pledge as well, too, and being able to collaborate and work and cross promote with everyone that I I would like to. So I launched that pop up in 2020 and then the pandemic happened. So kind of like maneuvering that pop up to other kind of platforms was a little difficult, but I was able to make that work. I had one or two pop ups in 2020, but 2021, I had my first pop-up in Oakland. And with all the recent attacks against the AAPI community, I really wanted to do something that was going to help them out, literally like help them out. So I had pledged to donate all of my tips from this one pop-up. I was very, very surprised by the outcome of my pop-up. It was, I think, like top three busiest shift I've ever worked in my life. And, uh, and uh, part of it was like, you know, I I thought it's a Monday, it's the pandemic, no one's going to show up, no one wants to go out. And I didn't bother like batching any of my cocktails, which was a huge mistake. And of course, I had a shaken, a stirred, a thrown and a built cocktail. So all different techniques. Um, But and I and with that being said, though, by myself in less than four hours, I was able to raise almost two thousand dollars for the AAPI community fund on GoFundMe. And uh, that I, I I remember getting very emotional thinking like, you know, it's not just me who cares. There's other people who care, too. And sometimes, you know, it's it's you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to just like pick and choose a certain, you know, group that you want to help out. So for me, these pop-ups mean a whole lot because every single pop-up that I plan on doing this summer, I really want to focus on a different group that do does need help. So my next pop-up I, uh, will have at my bar while talking San Francisco at the end of June. And that one is going to be a collaboration with um, Apinec, which is a grassroots organization building queer and trans America or trans trans Asian and Pacifica power and here in the Bay Area. It's kind of hard to like, you know, just choose one group. But I, you know, I'm just one person running my little pop up and I believe in the power of people. So just really kind of bringing awareness to 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 everyone, to my communities and the communities around me as well, too. You're amazing. Your your power of one is extreme. Don't underestimate your power of one. And <laughs> clearly your power of one is is a lot more because people are coming out on Monday night to uh, have a cocktail and, and support you. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. So it's good stuff. <laughs> All right, let's do a speed round. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Name the cocktail that inspired you to get behind the bar. I want to say a highball, but I think it was Umeshu and milk, which is not the most amazing combination, but <laughs> that's what grandpa <laughs> and grandma made me. <laughs> that's so funny. What's the last cocktail you made at home? A Negroni. Name a smell behind the bar that you love. Secondhand smoke. I don't smoke, but I love that smell. Hilarious. Name a smell behind the bar you hate. Mildew. One cocktail every home bartender should have in their repertoire. Their take on their perfect martini because you can make a martini a majillion different ways and you just got to figure out how to make it for you. (laughs) I love it. All right, let's close it out with what three words would you use to describe yourself? Effervescent, (laughs) bittersweet, and um, and jovial. (laughs) Amazing. Suzu, thank you so much for your time. I was super jazzed to talk to you. I need to get out to the West Coast to try your cocktails. I hope you continue scribbled notes and ideas and everything you do to make these cocktails come to life and tell a story because they all seem so special uh, in their own way. But I'm really, really excited for this episode. I'm really excited to make this cocktail. It was a pleasure (laughs) to meet you. Please keep in touch. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm super excited as well, too. And hopefully, actually, I I might have a pop up in Chicago. I've been talking to a couple other people. As I mentioned, I, I was in Chicago before the pandemic and became really great friends with some folks out there. So hopefully I'll be stopping by sometime this year. (laughs) Good good stuff. Keep in touch and let me know if you need anything out this way. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Have a good rest of the day. To get the recipe from this episode, check out the episode notes in your podcast player or go to beyondtheplaypodcast.com. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Drink, a production of Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy.